Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old fairy tales, myths, and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of old Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those ways of being and seeing and bring them back out into the world where they belong. In this series of conversations centered around the publication of my book, Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you reflections from women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through the dark forest of our forgetting. Haggitude is a radical rewriting of the future for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Haggitude, both the book and the membership program, at haggitude.org. So I'm delighted this afternoon to welcome to this series of podcasts on Haggitude, uh, the very wonderful Krista McKinnon. Uh, Krista is many things, a psychologist, a writer, an activist, a teacher of um, shamanism. And um, Krista, I met you about 20 years ago when I was studying um, clinical hypnotherapy in London. And you did a course that um, effectively merged some shamanic ideas into hypnotherapy. And then I did a year long apprenticeship with you that I had to unfortunately stop halfway through. But um, it was a very, very transformative time for me. And uh, I'm really grateful for that time. So uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sharon, and thanks for this very lovely introduction. I remembered you vaguely, and then I um, watched your development with astonishment, or I can say it, sorry, and I was quite pleased to realize the way and the path you took. It's wonderful to be here with you, so thank you for inviting me. And thank you. And you have that very, very beautiful accent. And if I remember rightly, you're from Berlin originally. Is that correct? Yes, I'm from Berlin originally. And I came to the UK in, I think it was 87. Yeah, in 1987. So I've been here a long time, but the accent remains. <laughs> it's very wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you again. And um, normally what I like to do to start off these conversations, uh, because they are occurring in the context of my forthcoming book, Haggitude, I'd love to ask you what the word hag conjures up in you, because some people find it, you know, either a little bit frightening or, or just very, very negative, because it's a word that has been used against us over the centuries, and other people find it kind of empowering precisely for that reason. So how do you feel about it as a word? I think for me, it's really both. If I um, think back in a way, to my childhood or earlier years, you know the word hack, which also is used uh, in Germany actually, is quite, well, it's it's kind of filled with the negative. So it's an old woman who can't be trusted, who is using kind of black magic and uh, they frightened almost the children mm -hmm. with it. So the hack, or in, in, in old German, the Hexe, is kind of a something you learned to fear. And it was also a person who kind of looked the part. So she looked run down and she was stooped, you know, and she had a, this piercing look and she wasn't very... Uh, approachable. So my original kind of, of very deep feelings about the hack is not necessarily positive because it melts together with that old witch, you know, who takes little children away when these children are 
naughty or when they do something, especially girls, of course, mm -hmm. when they do something which isn't accepted. Looking at it now, I see her more as the wise woman and also maybe the elder and the woman who walked her own path um, and arrives at a certain level of knowing and wisdom and clarity about herself and about society and what she stands for and what she will not stand for. So I see her now as much more positive, but there is this double edge for me in the world. I feel that is quite a provoking word, which is good. It's a word that provokes all these different feelings and attitudes and one has to question oneself almost, which I like. Here a word, I like that I have to question my own responses. Mm -hmm. And everybody, interestingly, that I have asked conjures up some image or other of the childhood witch, you know, either a positive one or sometimes, you know, I loved witches when I was a child. Yeah. I didn't much yeah. relate to the princesses. I wanted the witches. But a lot of people also found it very frightening. And I agree with you. What, what I find most interesting about my own kind of perspective on the hag is the things that she will not tolerate, the things that she says no to enough. Yeah. I'm yeah. not having that anymore because it seems to me also that at some level, older women are the best people to make those statements because in many, many ways, we have very much less to lose, perhaps. Much less to lose, yet, with yes, within a patriarchal society, I think we cannot, in a way, uh, throw a line and say, it's when we are older, we have less to lose. What we have when we are older, is kind of we can distinguish more between what was actually put on us artificially how women should be how women should behave how women should look what women are there for how they should be sex objects how they should bring up children and all of this and and then later on we still i think have something to lose but we can say no easier because we have we don't have to fulfill all these roles and demands any longer we can say partly we have done it unfortunately you know because we all unconsciously fall into the trap to a certain extent but we we were in it and realized it actually didn't fulfill us it didn't deep down nurture our souls. So what if 100 men found us attractive? So what? You know what I mean? So, so it's, it's, it's a time in life where I really feel we still have something to lose. Our life, for example, maybe we, we talk about this later, but we can distinguish between what really nourishes us and what really is worth our while, is worth our energy, is worth our focus, and what really, really doesn't matter on the long run. And that's what I feel about older age, incredibly liberating. Mm, indeed, yes, me too, yes. It's incredibly liberating, isn't there it? There is a freedom, yeah, there from is all kinds of things. Yeah, mm. there really, really is. And of course, that freedom I feel that grew for me with time, that I could appreciate it more. When you are still, or when I was still in my 50s, I felt it more as a loss. Right. And now I feel it more as a gain. And when did you go through, when did you begin to go through menopause yourself? Early. Very early, I went through it uh, at about 48, or physical menopause. Right. And in a funny way, I sailed through it. You know, I, yeah, I had a few hot flushes and this and that, and I had a bit of loss of energy for a while. But it didn't physically affect me very much. 
what affected me personally um, on every level of existence in later I had I'm just trying to think back how old I was I think I was 56 I had a heart attack oh wow yeah or 57 that for me was 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 that point no 57 that point where everything was questioned and everything started to turn so the menopause itself because i went through it relatively young with 48 and because it was physiologically not very affect very much affecting me it wasn't so much a time when i felt a big change was happening but that happened then later and as when i said to you i wrote my first book when i was 60 that was one of the outcomes of that heart attack at the age of 57. that's really interesting i last year when i just before i was 60 um in the middle of um, a global pandemic which was edifying i was diagnosed with an aggressive form of lymphoma and without treatment would have you know been gone within a few months yeah. and the treatment was itself an initiation as you can imagine yeah. but exactly the same thing i think well not exactly but something of the same thing yeah. happened to me because i had also had a relatively easy menopause uh, physically and had tried to carry on in many ways i thought i had let go of things but you know you don't really do you and it was just as if it was when I was writing Haggitude and it was just as if, you know, something up there had said, look, you know, if you really want to talk about elderhood, if you really think you have the audacity to have something to say on this subject, I'll show you what it looks like. And I think that then for me, that passage through an almost death experience, I was very lucky. I, you know, went through the chemotherapy very well and it seems to be fine now. But that did for me what the physical challenges of menopause do for other people. So I think, you know, if you miss out, something yeah. is going to make sure that you do it anyway in some form. So was that the same for you? That is interesting that you say that I didn't realize it at the time. But looking back, absolutely. It was absolutely the same for me. For you and for me, it was a life-threatening illness. And then you go through the suffering physiologically, you, the questions of life and death come up, your energy levels sink, you're going through treatment and you don't know whether you will survive it or not. And that is an initiation period, which I don't know if it is comparable with the menopause because like you I, I didn't have a big problem with the menopause but i can imagine it yeah, that it is comparable no it was exactly like that for you me and and it was really uh ending up in a and e and then um having having to change my lifestyle really being almost forced to have a look at how much energy have i got I mean, I remember it very well when I came back from hospital, back home, and the consultant said, you can walk twice a day for 10 minutes. And you know me, after two, three days, ah, nonsense, of course I can walk longer. I wanted to be out, you know. And I collapsed. I did a 20-minute walk, and I collapsed straight. And basically, um, my partner had to almost carry me home and I realized whoa the time when you can treat your body like a functioning machine is really over and that's just the physiological side of things right yeah it is interesting isn't it I think when, when that happened to me there was a, a suddenly a great deal of respect came over me for a body that I had effectively taken for granted for oh. 60 years and a tenderness as well same just a real way. appreciation for for yeah. all of the things that you take for granted that this this you know I, I always call a body a soulmate because literally it is in 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 some ways that this has been keeping yeah. you going more than yeah. that words it's very difficult to put into words but yes that was a 
that was an interesting time too that I think I've heard happen to a number of people as they grow older rather than kind of uh, resenting the body for failing breaking as it inevitably does as we get older actually there is a greater sense of appreciation and love almost for it there is there is i feel that now and uh, you know we all throw this sentence around oh the body is the temple and so on but when you are when it just functions it's difficult to really understand that on a deeper level because it just functions and and I'm quite sure it's the same is similar for you I always appreciated my mind and I love altered states of consciousness and I love dancing and I love science you know and 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 I I kind of was always in a funny way more connected to my mind and my body there are people who are very connected to the body I wasn't one of them and it it really as you say suddenly there was an appreciation and also for me personally i don't know how you feel about it but i love life i love life on mm. this planet yes indeed you know i think this is a beautiful planet right. i love being out there i love uh i love every minute of life and to be so close to not having this life in this body any longer i realized I actually if i want to be here and keep loving this life i have to have a body you know right. to inhabit i have to be my body and i have to be more careful more tender more appreciative and so on absolutely it's interesting. I normally leave death till the end of the conversation. <laughs> we, we seem to have happened upon it anyway. One of the things I remember when I was doing that training with you, I remember you talking about your own early-ish, I guess, experience in shamanic work in, um, was it Ecuador? Have I remembered yeah, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. And talking about going through the kind of ritual death yeah. with those people yeah. which is part of the initiation yeah, into shamanic work can you say something about that for people who are not familiar with the work and how yes. that relates to what you experienced if it does perhaps it doesn't it does and it doesn't and here comes a time factor for me and again i can only speak for me when i did um that i was much younger i was in my 40s and um it was uh, an initiation which basically in in many shamanic cultures or or what we call shamanic cultures these days uh, which is a kind of an umbrella organ uh, term of course for for many different traditions the kind of shamanic apprentice uh, needs and has to go through these kind of near-death initiations for two reasons i mean one is to learn to to kind of navigate these worlds beyond and the second reason which is i think as important is uh to overcome the fear of death because we have of course as you know sharon a survival instinct so we can only um with let's say without using a strong plant medicine we can only go that far when we go into altered states and mm -hmm. and at one point i guess it's the brain interprets it as a near death and it pulls us back into the body now and back into normal kind of perception of reality and so the, the initiation period, the, these initiations are also designed to overcome that fear and to overcome that survival instinct. So these are two reasons really uh, they, they are done. And I did one of them, but it didn't feel as real to me as the harder tactic did. And I had a a dismemberment experience when I was much, much younger, uh, when I lived in an ashram in India for half a year. When I was a student, I took some time out to travel. And 
that was very similar. I, I felt it, I was dismantled and I, I broke into thousands of pieces and I couldn't come back together anymore. I just couldn't. And it, for me, it felt it went on like hours and it was very, very frightening. I can only say that for me, there was something about the power of youth, which just made me know somewhere deep, deep down that this was not life threatening in the end, right. while the heart attack was. <laughs> for me, that was really in a funny way the first time where a very deep part of me knew that it, this could be my last five minutes, 10 minutes, hour. Like, like when you cancer, you, you, you know, this is, this is physiologically real. So there was a difference for me between those experiences. Do, do you think then that it is possible to learn to, what is the word, I don't know, to befriend death, to, to in some way walk with death by your side without going through an actual almost physical death? Mm, interesting. This is really interesting because, and I really need to come from personal experience here. For me, this is a really big question and has been for a long time. As I said before, I love life on this planet. I really, really do. You know, I never ever, even in my darkest hours, and I have gone through a few dark nights of the soul, came close to saying, I'm going to end this. Mm -hmm. I really uh, love the life here. And death for me was always something which was kind of connected to a certain fear. And at one point, and that was uh, after the heart attack, I had to look into that. I went to Mexico and I did a training with uh, a shaman who does this kind of death training, you know, who, death training sounds, but it's, it's kind of, look at it. That's kind of the whole idea. Look at it, experience it, go deep with it. And I had to overcome quite a bit of fear to do that training, but I thought I need to do something here, you know, because all my my spiritual experiences haven't solved that for me. Okay. So can we walk with death? I think we have to. It's almost like if we don't, we will not understand the beauty and the gifts we have been given to be on this planet, in this body, and to have the co-creating powers we have, as you well know, we have the illusion of time, that we have all the time in the world, which we don't. And we don't understand that, well, we do, we can do it without walking with death, that there's so much more to us that death is actually in the end the death of the body. And I have understood that now. Um, that doesn't mean I want to die. It just means that the, the kind of anxiety around the issue is gone. But I had it for a long, long time and I still don't like to talk too much about it or to think too much about it and it comes with that love of this life and also i think many people have that that feeling i still have to do something here in this body on this planet mm -hmm. yeah but yeah i feel the older we get the more we are asked to look at the issue of death our body asks us to, our mind asks us, spirit asks us, our soul asks us, you know. Because our society, as you know, Sharon, our society uh, pretends it doesn't exist. Indeed. And I think, you know, a lot of people in some way approach death as, a, as an entity, as an energy, whatever you want to call it, through grief, 
you know, through experiencing perhaps the death of someone close to them rather than their own. And yeah. certainly I would say that my first real awareness of and experience relationship with was death where it was actually, it sounds really strange, but nobody close to me ever died until yeah. um, our much, much loved Border Collie sheepdog, who was a working sheepdog, got lymphoma. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Curiously, the oh, same goody. kind of lymphoma that I had in exactly the same place on her neck and had exactly the same treatment. But that was by the by. That was a real shock because she was such an important part of our lives. You know, we don't have children. So it's not that she was a surrogate child. That's way too simplistic. But she was a being in this world and, and still is, by the way, she's still here, a being in this world that, that seemed to to bring so much joy to it. You know, she was just a perfect example of the beauty and the, the joy and the spontaneity of life on this planet. So she gets lymphoma. She's going to die. Even with chemotherapy, she's going to die within 12 months. She doesn't actually. She's still bouncing around like a pup five years on. That's the good news. Um, but it, I really felt, and I described it to a friend at the time, I felt as if death had walked in the door and sat down at my table uninvited. And I didn't know what to do about that because that had never happened. But I did have a very strong sense of, you know, death, not as a person, because that would be a little bit too simplistic, but as a but as a real energy that it was just it was just saying, OK, it's time for you. It's time for you to to understand. It's time for you almost to, to befriend. And by the time I had gone through that lymphoma experience, it wasn't that I wanted necessarily to invite death in but you know now I would give death a glass of wine at least you know, <laughs> and and try and understand why it had come visiting and I love that roomy poem about um you know the guests the various guests that oh, come yeah. into your life yeah. Yeah. and death was one of those guests that wasn't welcome at first but actually kind of almost almost became so by the end of it I could I could see it so is there I don't know whether this is the case for you, but is there a particular I understand character you that you think of as death? You know, if you think of death, do you think of, of a being, a, a character, or do you think of death as an energy, or, or does it just not work that way for you? No, it, it, it works for me. It is a whirling energy. Okay. Whirling it's energy. not a being. It's mm -hmm. a whirling energy. It is for me still kind of dark a dark energy but it's very much alive if you know what i mean it's <laughs> just a whirling energy it's and it moves upwards so it's not a being it is it, it is in energetic form and when i see it or experience it it's usually in energetic form it's not light i mean i have uh, other uh, energy experiences, especially when I do, uh, when I go out of the body, which is fairly multicolored and then becomes white. But death is not like that. But it is a whirling energy, and I see it more and more like this. That it is just um, like this is an energy. This body is an energy, but vibrates on a certain level and so for me it is solid and tangible and touchable and lives in a certain environment that also vibrates on a certain level and therefore I can see it, I can touch it and so on. Death is also for me more an energy now or is an energy rather than a person and sometimes I talk to it. <laughs> And, I, and best. I, I think it's best to. Yes. Yeah. I think it's actually important to do, as you said, give it a glass of wine, invite it as a guest, you know, um, because it will come no matter if we invite it as a guest or fight it, right. it will come. Right. So we might as well, mightn't we, to make it part of life. Indeed. Indeed, and a necessary part yeah, of life, yeah, I think. Absolutely. When, when you think of, well, you don't have to think of it, you're in it, we're both in it in, in, in different ways. Elder, the, the process of being an elder woman and kind of how that, how we can, how we can make that matter, how we can kind of harvest the gifts of elderhood is something that I'm clearly very interested in and that I really spend some time doing in Hackitude in, in, in my new book. So just, just as another another question that I, I like to throw in, 
in the book, I talk a lot about the different archetypes of older women that come from European myths and fairy tales. You know, so in the Germanic tradition, we have uh, Mother Holla, um, the um, old lady at the bottom of the well, who is a kind of, well, she's kind of weaving the world into being. She is a little bit like the fates. She's she's spinning she's she's making stuff happen we have baba yaga you know the dangerous old woman in the woods the classic yeah. initiator we have the tricksters the loathly ladies who ride out of the wood and tell the heroes all of the ways in which they've been doing the wrong thing we have fairy godmothers um you know we have lots of characters in these stories who may not be the actual protagonists the main characters but in some way always seem to keep the the narrative going they're the ones who sort of define the parameters in a sense is there any of those characters any of those archetypal characters that you particularly relate to as a reflection of your own elderhood are you a mentor are you a peacemaker are you a trickster and disruptor what what are you Mm. and does it differ from what you were before yeah it does differ yeah, it is, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because I'm asking that question myself, of course, <laughs> and, um, and have asked that question many times because I can see, of course, a change that has happened over the last few years to me. And I see myself much more now in that capacity of the weaver and I do actually feel that we are weaving at the moment that we are asked to weave a web in a way that creates you said parameters and that's a good word the parameters of the new world which has to emerge it has to Mm -hmm. and it feels to me that elders are asked to bring in the wisdom and the knowledge and the experience but also the overview you know to see the bigger picture Mm -hmm. into this process right now while it is more the younger people who are on that energetic high who are asked to do the more active stuff. For us, it's more about, I think seeing the bigger picture is quite important. Where the world is right now, we could all go into an absolute panic and despair on every single level, starting with the environment to uh, the politicians, which seem to be ruling more and more countries to the way what happened just in the US that it goes backwards for women on certain levels, you know, and mm-hmm. we could all go into an absolute spin. Right. And it feels to me that one of the I'm coming back to the mythological figures in the moment, but one of the tasks of the elders and especially of the women, because we are moving towards the feminine we are moving to we have to again if we want a change which which will really lift us up we need it it needs feminine the deep feminine values need to be brought in and the feminine wisdom of life death and rebirth needs to become uh, something ingrained in human consciousness so i i think it's the bigger picture which we need to hold and it's it's really interesting if you look at the south american way of looking at time they think in 500 year intervals Hmm. right while we of course all think in here now and tomorrow and the day after and nothing else exists almost and so the wisdom of the bigger picture, even if this collapses, this is not in the end the absolute catastrophe because something new will emerge even from what have collapsed. It might be very, very painful, of course, and none of us wants it. But to hold the bigger, I don't want to say spiritual, I do want to say it, the bigger spiritual picture, the bigger picture of 
what life is about and the cycles are about and and societies go the same cycles they birth and they die and then there comes a rebirth and that's one of the tasks i feel of the elder right now of course there are the other tasks of passing it on passing the wisdom on the learning on but at this moment in time where we are in such a transformational upheaval to see the bigger picture and to hold on to it and to be clear about it is really really important because otherwise we're just spinning all over the place i agree um, and so a lot of your work is with women and, and activism yeah, of various yeah, kinds and one of the things that i've i've always been intent on on believing is that there are various ways there are various forms of activism you know it's not oh, all yeah. about going on marches which is very very wonderful but for some of us just way just just a particular way of living of being in the world can be a kind of form of revolution you know a kind of form of activism a book can be a form of activism yep. um is that how you see it with elder women too Yes, I just wanted to say, I mean, I would see your books quite clearly in the category of activism. Yes, because in a way, what you're doing is, is it's, it's quite astonishing what you have produced, because you have, you are reminding us with your books that there is a huge mythology and a huge amount of archetypal energies annoying or that can transfer that knowing to us if we just tap into them, if we just look for it. It's, it's, it's all there and your books bring that beautifully across. So for me, this is a kind of activism in so far that one of the changes I feel needs to happen is that we see ourselves again in a much bigger context exactly yeah. yeah that we understand that we are much much more than this right now and only if we can do that and there comes the elder question in can we again revere our elders and ancestors and also see further than our the next generation or two right. yeah. So it is this bigger picture. So I think everything which contributes to that contributes to that weaving of the web of which will hopefully embed what is coming next and define it. But so activism for me personally is also more concrete, political. And I'm kind of glad now to be at that point Sharon, I always was a political being and for me the difficulty always was to combine the spiritual with the political. Right. Because you remember through the New Age period when it was absolutely seen as completely negative to be in any way or form political. I know, isn't that strange? Yeah. <laughs> and we all have to think positive and everything is fine. No, no it's not. No, that was awful. Yeah. And still yeah. is when it's and still is and still is, unfortunately. Yeah. So for me at the moment, and activism is such a broad field. Look what Manda Scott did with the Boudicca series. This Indeed. is clearly activism because yeah. especially for women. It's kind of activism of the imagination, in a sense. Absolutely. And bringing, again, uh, something to life which, which we can tap into. We have a warrior inside. And we, have, we all have, um, how she called that Russian um, archetype you just men mentioned? Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga. Right. We all have Baba Yaga inside. And so to become multifaceted is part of, of this activism because we have reduced ourselves to something which is just not human anymore. It's an artificial creation. But anyway, I wanted to get into activism a bit. So for me personally, that is one of the shifts I did experience lately is this idea of trying to combine the spiritual with the political. It's not easy. But 
I do work a bit within XR and what we do is mainly ceremonial work. We also did ceremony at the HS2 camps mm -hmm. and we also brought it into Stonehenge, uh, you know, when the road works. So what we're trying to do is basically uh, two or three things. Uh, number one is really to begin the activism which with asking Earth and the ancestors what they want us to do. So it's not about, oh, we don't like this road, now let's block it. Or, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a completely different way of approaching things. And then the next uh, step is really to work on that level of of on that energetic level, but also bring that into the concrete activism. Because the, the concrete activism, if you look at HS2, all the camps, they were young people, and that's what they, they need to be young people. I can't do that anymore. Right. <laughs> and nor do you want to do it. And nor does anybody over 50, 60 want to do it to live in a tree for three months and then be cut down. Right. But what we can do. Um, is to bring a spiritual component into that. So that is basically where sacred earth activism works. So it's an, a relatively new concept, but you might remember it was done at Standing Rock in America. Yes, indeed. They did exactly that, you know. They went out during the day and they stood up to the, to the bulldozers and they did all of that. And they came back in the evening and there was ceremony and they did a ceremony in the morning because they before they went out. So it is this combination of uh, spirituality and concrete activism, which I'm interested in. And, and for me, it is um, a kind of bringing it together. And I quite enjoy it in so far that it explores almost a new frontier. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning quite a lot uh, through it, but that's only part of what I do. But yes, I, I, but there are many forms of activism, everything which contributes in a way to that web we are creating, I think is activism these days. Interesting. One of the pet ideas I have, I guess, is that somewhere in our childhood, was the seed of the old woman that we long to become yeah is that the case for you yeah i think i think it is and, and, and what was that seed do you think <sighs> that is a real difficult one um for me personally if i just spontaneously answer this question shall i mm, yes please that's what it's for it's kind of the rebel right it's and i can see it all through my life it's just firstly saying no to the things i felt are not right mm -hmm. then moving on to concretely standing up against it and really uh, and that's when i said i was a political being in my early life so taking action and then a slow slow finding out what i actually want and who i actually am right. you know coming from the no to like a lot of us do like you did with with uh your previous life uh in the corporate world mm -hmm. uh, you first say no this is it and i need to take the risk to step out right and i feel it was always the rebel in a way that was driving me for a long time and i can still become quite turning a kind of anger or when i feel there's an injustice into a kind of action which is then positive but i think the old woman uh, i have become and the older woman comes in a way from a deep, deep sense of when, when I see injustice, it, it stirs me. I, 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 I cannot meditate over it. I feel 
I have to contribute to change this somehow in the world. Is that something? Now I'm doing it more with this kind of wisdom and insight and with um, being more connected to something much bigger. I, I, I don't see it isolated anymore, you know, mm-hmm. in my little small action. But yeah, for me, I guess that's what it was. I, and is there something of the truth teller archetype in that, that the rebel, there is. I always think of the rebel as a, a, it doesn't have to be, of course, but the rebel is a, as a younger archetype, as you're describing. And I wonder whether that doesn't turn into this lovely character that I think of as the truth teller. Again, the old woman that rides out of the woods and says, this is really shit. Don't that's do that. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I think that's exactly what it, it na, is. Na. It, it, it comes out of that rebel and the truth teller. I like uh, that archetype. Yes, I often thought one of the of, of the myths which always fascinated me was Cassandra. Oh, yes. the, the prophetess who just had to. She just couldn't help it herself. Na. And nobody listened. That and nobody listened. Na. And, and she was punished for it badly. Yeah. She was given to, I think, to Agamemnon, and, and yes. he went away. It was really it horrendous. Well. Yeah. But it, it is this this kind of almost, like, I cannot look at myself if, you know, with, with, with love and with, um, and, and if, if I don't say, okay, this is, I feel not right, and if I can, I can do, I do something about it. If I can't, I can't. It's not a compulsion. But yeah, so there is something about a truth teller. Yeah, it's maybe a nicer place to, to be. It's not always an easy place. No, it's not an easy place. It's one of the more difficult archetypes, I often think, particularly in a world where telling the truth, the truth can still get you kind of metaphorically burnt at the stake, particularly on Twitter and social media and other places. It's a hard world to do it in as much as it ever was. Yeah. And this is, of course, especially for women, as you just say, we have, I mean, I have worked with enough women and I guess so have you, you know, when you do anything like a past life regression or go anywhere into altered state, the one big fear that comes up for women is being burned at a stake. Right. The big fear comes up for men usually is war right. and being forced into war. That's the right. two. And, and for us as women, it is so deep seated that, that standing up and being heard and, and, telling our truth is so frightening Mm -hmm. much more frightening than what we know consciously because it taps into ah, you know it as well all the way back from the witch trials what's what's the witch wound it's it's the The witch wound yeah and even if you think about it much much earlier if it really uh, i mean many many thousands of years ago when we moved uh, from being tribal to agriculture and woman has had to become a possession because men or we had something to pass on to our children and we needed to know where our children came from or men needed to know whether their child was their child so the property could be passed on I mean women were killed for adultery it's not that no it's not only the witch it's, it's just the whole what has been done to women and I feel I feel that we are all out there now and speaking our truths and how we see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And looking at all these myths and all these stories. And, and yeah, you remind me sometimes in a completely different way on um, how is she called? Um, oh, this amazing American woman who um, does forgotten archetypes or forgotten histories. No, repressed histories. Oh, Max Stashi. Max Stashi. Right. Who right. looks into into mm. the whole suppression of female right. history. Right. Yeah. All these many. wonderful women who stood up and who had power and who were guided by the feminine values and principles of nurturing life and the thriving of life. And they had the wisdom of life, death and rebirth. And it was so suppressed. 
Indeed, but but it came from it came from these lands that we inhabit now. You know, we don't even have to import it. No, those stories were were from here, and they're very much our stories and the stories of our ancestors. And yeah, yeah, reimagining re them, reclaiming them, I think is is yeah. a pretty good pretty good work for the day. Absolutely, it is, and it's a huge form of activism which you are doing. It's this reclaiming of those of those stories, you know, of reality, mm -hmm. which. If we are not reclaiming it, we will only always have half of a reality. Indeed. Yeah. We yeah. never have the past to in any way. We have no lineage. We have no oh. ancestors. And no roots. No. no roots, exactly. Exactly. And no roots. Yeah, yeah. If women rose rooted. Yeah. <laughs> we will. We are. Oh Christ yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and I can see that in many young women. Okay, there is a big split, but there is a kind of earthiness coming back, isn't there? I think so. Yeah, much, much, much needed. Yeah. yeah. A yeah. return to some embodied way of knowing as well, which Absolutely. like you, I, I struggled right. with a lot when I was younger. Same here, same here. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know how it was for you, but for me, it was definitely trying to train the mind yeah. rather than, and in a way, it was a good phase to go through because our women's minds have been so undernourished and so suppressed mm -hmm. for so long. Mm. So for us, mm. that was really necessary. Yes, it's a valuable thing, but in isolation, yeah. it has its its. Um, yeah, because it's not embodied. We are not rooted. Yeah, now, Krista, it's been a real pleasure. To... We could talk for hours. I know, I know, <laughs> and I love to. <laughs> But it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a really rich conversation. W would you like, before we finish, just to tell people where they can find you, where they can find out more about you and your work, websites yes. and all that? I mean, first, well. thank you ever so much for inviting me. And I don't know if we have covered, uh, we could cover much more, but I think we covered something. And thank you ever so much for talking to me. Yes, uh, you can just find me on my website and there's different bits on my website, which uh, so it's www.kristamckinnon.com. It's quite easy. My books are on there as well. I mean, they're in, on Amazon. Brilliant. All right, Krista. Well, thank you so much again. And um, delightful to catch up. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Mythic Life in a series centred on Hagitude. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership programme, please visit hagitude.org.